welcome to Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God, His two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO, Christ for you anytime, anywhere. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Faith Lutheran Church in Godfrey, Illinois. Thank you to our generous underwriters on Sharper Iron, the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. And Luther Classical College, a college for Lutherans by Lutherans, opening in fall 2025. Learn more at lutherclassical.org. On this Thursday, February 16th, we are studying John chapter 8, verses 39 to 47. The Jews listening to Jesus are convinced that not only is Abraham their father, but God is as well. Yet Jesus points out that the fact that they refuse to listen to him means that they have a different father. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's word today, we have with us returning guest, Pastor Mark Squire. Pastor Squire serves at Emmanuel Lutheran Church in St. Ansgar, Iowa. Pastor Squire, welcome back to Sharp Iron. Thanks, Pastor Apple. It's a pleasure to study God's Word with you. As we get started today, Pastor, let's talk context. What shall we know about the Gospel of John? Any immediate context that will help us with these words of Jesus today? So Jesus uh, is speaking, like you said, with the Jews. This seems to be part of a larger um, discourse of Jesus in chapter 7 and 8. Jesus is in Jerusalem, John tells us in chapter 7, verse 2, for uh, the feast John loves the different feasts, so he mentions the Feast of Booze, the Feast of the Passover. Sometimes he just says generically the Feast of the Jews. Jesus has these different back and forths, if you will, from Jerusalem to Galilee throughout the gospel. And we see already in John, the beginning of John chapter 7 that Jesus uh, wasn't going to Judea. He was going about in Galilee because, John says, the Jews were seeking to kill him. So the context here being that Jesus is in Jerusalem. The Jews are seeking to kill him, so he's in danger, uh, as it were. And yet he has gone down to the feast and has begun teaching, and people are starting to wonder and marvel at him. But this wondering, this marveling, people flocking to him, even believing in him, has caused the leaders especially to increase their opposition to him. And as we're going to see today, because of what Jesus says, not just about beforehand being the light of the world or any of these sorts of things, but more specifically that, that he and the Father are one. Uh, this, this is going to rile them up. You know, thinking about the context, we were talking before we started recording that the section we have today is skipped over in the lectionary. The text right beforehand and the text right after, we hear those on a Sunday morning in worship, but this one we don't. Just thinking about the context and the opposition that you're talking about that's building here against Jesus, it's striking that just back up in verse 31, Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him. So, I mean, this conversation, there has been some who they're starting to believe in him, and yet he keeps coming at him with the truth. He never backs down, and and now the opposition really is starting to build in our text. It is. And this is the text uh, 31 through 38 that we hear on Reformation Sunday. You know, the truth will set you free. You will hear the truth, and the truth will set you free. And like you point out, there are people who are believing in him, and yet we seem to see from throughout John's gospel that this belief is rather shallow or introductory. And especially at the end of chapter six, the disciples say to him, you know, how hard these words are. And there are many disciples who are leaving him. So 
there are a lot of people who are flocking to Jesus, who are believing in him. He's speaking the truth, and yet it seems to be that they're coming to him, they're believing in him, usually because of the signs that he's doing or the rumors that they're hearing, and maybe even his opposition to the leaders, which weren't universally liked among the Jewish people. But when Jesus speaks the truth, and especially when he starts speaking in these sorts of ways about him being the Son of God, uh, speaking the truth from above, you know, he's come to these people that it, it gets harder and harder for a lot of people to stick with Jesus because this is something unique, it's something new. And for a lot of people, this uh, borders on or is outright blasphemy. Mm. Right. We're going to see that, especially as this text continues past what we have today, how the opposition builds to Jesus. And they understand what he's claiming, but they don't believe that. Again, this is building in our text today. Mm -hmm. Another thing we were talking about before we came on air was that with John's gospel not always being strictly chronological, it seems, it's often a lot more thematic. And we've seen many themes in the gospel of John get repeated. What are some of those themes in John's gospel that we've heard before, we'll hear more that we're going to encounter in our text today? Yeah, there's any number of things. Uh, your listeners might be familiar with the, the light and the darkness theme that John likes to write about with Jesus' words that picks up right in chapter one. We see that in chapter three with Nicodemus coming to him in the darkness, uh, and then Jesus, of course, being the light of the world, these sorts of things. John loves to use the word love. Uh, he does both in his mm -hmm. gospel and in his letters. That's a big one. Uh, Jesus is often doing signs which are showing his authority and who he is. Uh, but the ones that specifically will have to do with the pericope that we're looking at today are the ones that have to do with John's use of the word truth or that Jesus is testifying to the truth. We're going to hear that today. Uh, at, right after this pericope, we hear Jesus claiming to be one with the Father, which of course is is just smack, smacks you in the face at the beginning of the gospel, right? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. You have to really, think, well, we can't really understand the fullness of that, and yet how important it is to this, this gospel, to our faith, to this conversation that Jesus is not just some prophet. Uh, he's not just some miracle worker. He's not even the Messiah or the Christ that they expected. And this is why one reason that they oppose him, but he is the one sent from God certainly the Messiah, but um, the one that, that God has set up, the one that uh, God has given for the sins of the world. Mm. Okay, so a lot of themes that we've encountered before in John that we continue to encounter today. As I, I look at this text, just thinking about it ahead of time, one of the big questions is, is whose, whose son are you or whose child are you? Who is, if I can say it this way, who's your daddy? That's yeah. the, I'm thinking that's the episode title for today is who's there your you daddy? Because <laughs> the, the question of, you know, is Abraham our father? Is God our father? And then, you know, whose father is is Jesus? Uh, all of these things are, are going to come into play today as we look at the text. Any more introductory comments before we jump in? I guess I'll just say that it is a bit difficult to, and I think this is true of any number of our lectionary pericopes is that oftentimes we're coming in either in the middle of a letter or the middle of a conversation, which, you know, we have to set some context here. And I, I think we've been doing a good job of that so far, but the, the verse 39 begins with, they answered him. Well, you know, well, what was going on before? And again, it's that pericope from, from Reformation where Jesus is referring to himself as the son who is uh, setting free through his word 
and speaking what his father has said and doing what his father does. And yet he sets up then the opposition and he ends with, you do what you have heard from your father. So you're right, this, this idea of who's your daddy, who's your father, uh, of, of which family are you? Because as we hear in this, there really are only two groups and that's, that's going to be important. Yeah. Okay. So let's go ahead and jump into the text. This is John 8, beginning at verse 39. They answered him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You are doing the works your father did. They said to him, we were not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, even God. Jesus said to them, If God were your father, you would love me, for I came from God, and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, and has nothing to do with the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I tell the truth, you do not believe me. Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. That's our text for today. That's John 8 verses 39 to 47. So, Pastor Squire, as you said, we're picking up in the middle of a conversation here. They answered him, Abraham is our father. Remind us of what Jesus was saying and, and what they're saying in response when they say this, Abraham is our father. Yeah, if we go back a little further, we see that Jews who have come, and John uses this term Jews a bit loosely. Uh, oftentimes it can mean the leader. Certainly here we see that although some believed in him, these are a lot of these are those who opposed him, which naturally would include the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the scribes, uh, all those sorts of people. But they've they've um, accused him of having a demon. So the opposition already is is quite stark. It's quite intense. They don't like Jesus, and they're I think they're happy that he's come to Jerusalem because they expect to be able to either arrest him or kill him. And yet Jesus keeps responding to them in the sense that, well, what are you actually going to convict me of? What do you have against me? And for them, uh, it's what Jesus says about him being the son of God. What they don't like is that Jesus is making himself equal with God, which we're going to see again here in a little bit. But what Jesus said right before this was that if the son sets you free, you'll be free indeed. I know that you are offspring of Abraham. So he actually allows them the point that, of course, by the flesh, yes, you are offspring of Abraham. Yet, he says, you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. I speak of what I have seen with my father, and you do what you have heard from your father, which is sort of one of these enigmatic statements of Jesus throughout the gospel, you know, when he talks about being born again or born from above. Nicodemus wonders, well, what do you mean? I can't crawl back into my mother and be born again. Or when he's talking to the Samaritan woman at the well about living water, you know, they don't quite understand at first, and yet they recognize that he's making some really important claims. So 
when they're answering here, Abraham is our father, they seem to be saying, yeah, Abraham's our father. True. And that actually means something very important. In fact, we're special. You know, God has chosen us. And that means that to us belong the covenant and the promises and salvation. And yet what, what they see in Jesus is that somebody has come to challenge uh, what I might call their security, which is in the flesh, which is, which is the big irony here, because yes, they're children of Abraham, and yet Jesus is pointing out, while that's true by the flesh, you're really not children of Abraham in any sort of meaningful sense. They had a similar objection previously in the in the last text again in verse thirty three, where they they said we are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. And we we talked about that in the previous episode about how you know it, it's more than just a, a historical misremembrance or something like that. But precisely what you're saying, you know, they they recognize the children of Abraham have these promises of God but they're understanding it in a fleshly way, as you pointed out. And it seems that that same misunderstanding has continued here. They, they still want this insistence. Abraham is our father. These promises do belong to us. Why do you keep saying that we're not the children of Abraham? How does, how does Jesus then continue to make his point about what it really means to be children of Abraham? So he says that being a child of Abraham is not something that's just a reality based on your bloodline. So you can trace your lineage all the way back to Abraham. Well, congratulations. What does that mean in the end? For Jesus, he's saying not really much of anything, because if you were really a child of Abraham in a meaningful sense, verse 39, you would be doing the works Abraham did. Well, you start to think, well, what were the works that Abraham did? Well, Abraham's story covers much of the beginning and kind of middle part of Genesis, so all the way from the end of chapter 11 through uh, really the middle chapters of the 20s, you have the story of Abraham. You have him heeding God's call uh, to go to the land of Canaan from Haran. You know, his family had move, moved from Ur of the Chaldeans to Haran, and then God calls him and, and tells him to go to Canaan. So he listens, he believes. And throughout Genesis, you see Abraham, who of course is not perfect. We see him slip up, you know, any number of times. But the fact that he listens to God and specifically that he believes God, and this is one of the verses that's quoted more than once in the New Testament, that he believed God and God credited it to him as righteousness. Well, with this pericope specifically, we see how important it is for somebody to listen to the word of God. This really is, I think, the foundation of all this, the, the, the central point that Jesus is making, that if you want to be a child of Abraham, it comes down to listening to the word, actually believing that what God says is true, which for Abraham reached its climax in chapter 22 when God mm. calls to him from heaven and says, oh, hey, I just gave you the son, but by the way, I want you to take him to Moriah and uh, sacrifice him. Oh, well, that's strange because this, this is the son you promised me, right? And we could have seen Abraham discuss or argue, you know, similarly like he did in, was it chapter uh, 18 or 19 with uh, Sodom and Gomorrah, right? Well, excuse me, God, uh, what if there are 40 people? What if there are 30 people? And yet we don't see that. In fact, he goes right away. He takes Isaac with him. And when Isaac asks him, probably kind of starting to sweat here, well, here's the wood, here's the fire, but where's the sacrifice? Uh, 
what does he say? He says, God will provide the sacrifice. And in fact, he had told his servants as well, I and the boy are going to go and then we will return. So whatever he believed about what was going to happen, either God was going to stop him or as the, uh, is it, is it in Hebrews where uh, there's the, uh, you know, in some manner he believed in the resurrection of the the body, right? So yeah. the, the faith of Abraham really is, is the central part of this, what it means to be a child of Abraham, to do the works of Abraham. Okay, so let, let's talk about that a little bit more, because the way that Jesus says it here, you know, you would be doing the works Abraham did, but, but what you're saying is that the works that Abraham did are not really works in the sense that sometimes we talk about it, faith versus works, mm-hmm. but the works of Abraham here, that's precisely the faith that Abraham had. Right, he believed in the word, and naturally, at, you know, as Lutherans, we we talk this way too that that faith bears fruit. So we see the faith played out, which is actually a big point of Jesus in John's gospel. That uh, you know, if you believe in me, you're going to do what I say. This is one of the questions too that um, I think pastors sometimes use in their ministry. That Jesus says, "Well, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not?" do what I say. <laughs> so yeah. certainly we can't separate the faith and the works, but you're right. When, when he talks about doing the works that Abraham did, really all of the stuff that he does, all of the actions that he takes are based in the faith that he has in the word of God, in God's faithfulness, that God will do what he says. And whatever that means for Abraham, he's going to do it, even if that means some immediate hardship. One of the things that I've I always find striking about John chapter 8, particularly as we get into this text, and really I think it comes to a climax in the next text, is what this faith of Abraham is and what, what Abraham believed. And, you know, I mean, as you've been saying it, you know, Abraham believed the word of God. And so the difference between the people listening to Jesus, they're not believing the word of God. But I think as this text goes farther, and I think it's it's present here a little bit, it's not only that Abraham believed the word of God, but that Abraham actually believed in Jesus, if mm-hmm. we can be as bold to say it that way. And I think you start to see that here, that part of the reason they're not children of Abraham is they don't believe in Jesus, and Abraham did believe in Jesus looking forward to that promise. And I think that's one of the things we shouldn't miss in John chapter eight. You're right. And I think we see that in the difference between what Abraham would have looked forward to in the seed that God promised and what the Jews in general were looking for in the Messiah. Mm. So Abraham, I, I don't think it's any stretch of the imagination to say that Abraham was not looking for someone to come and sort of establish a kingdom in this strip of land in the Middle East, whereas uh, popularly at least, and certainly among others, that they believed that, okay, this Messiah was going to come, he was going to take over the land of Israel, kick out the Romans and whoever else might come, and bring back the glory days of David and Solomon. Hmm. And so the signs that Jesus does shows that he's the Messiah, and yet they keep asking him, well, what sign will you give us that we might believe in you? And of course, we, 2,000 years later, are banging our heads against the wall. Like, what are you talking about? He just fed 5,000 people. Why are you asking for a sign? But it's because they're not the signs that they're looking for. They're looking for this earthly, fleshly Messiah. Whereas, like you said, Pastor Apple, Abraham would have looked forward to a savior, somebody who was going to uh, end the madness of sin and corruption and death, which you know, talk about uh, one of Abraham's ancestors, Noah. This is why 
Noah is is named what he is. His name means a rest, right? Uh, that uh, you know, finally God will give us some sort of break from this, <laughs> and that that was the hope of the patriarchs. That that's been the hope of God's faithful people throughout history. So with this conversation about who is your father, they're claiming Abraham is our father. Jesus says, no, to be Abraham's children isn't just a matter of bloodline, but it is about the faith of Abraham, which is a point that Paul will pick up in several of his epistles, I think most notably Romans and Galatians. Again, he he points this out to the Jews who are listening to him. They come back again with questions about being, you know, whose, whose children are we? They say, we were not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, even God. Let's take those two sentences separately. What's this? Why do they bring up we were not born of sexual immorality? Where does that come from? Yeah, this seems to be sort of a crass, underhanded insult, like a slap in the face to Jesus. And it seems to come from what was probably the popular understanding that Mary had become pregnant outside of marriage to Joseph. So she became pregnant when they were betrothed and yet not married. And so people are, of course, going to start to talk. Well, how did this happen? Did Joseph and Mary sleep together before they got married? Did Mary commit adultery by sleeping with someone else? Did something else happen? No one's going to come and say, oh, well, the Holy Spirit conceived this, this child. Not many people are going to accept that explanation. And so I think this, this sort of came from that popular understanding of some, in some way, Mary became pregnant. And Jesus is the result of this, what they call here, sexual immorality. So what they're doing is insulting Jesus. It's one of these, you know, ad hominems. They, mm. they don't really have a good basis for their, uh, for their discussion, for their point of view. And so what do they do? They start to attack Jesus. Well, you were born mm. of sexual immorality, but we're children of Abraham. And even more, we have one father, even God. So that they seem to be sort of contrasting the supposedly sinful conception of Jesus to their their own sort of holiness or you know descent from God that that God is their father they're holy they're special they're chosen whereas Jesus is just just the child of of immorality so yeah, I mean to read it perhaps and I know you don't you don't get this in the New Testament the tone of voice but something like we were not born right, of sexual right. immorality <laughs> kind of wink wink yeah. you see them doing that that's that's what's going on in that first sentence uh, which is which is striking because in in John's gospel in the narrative that's given you don't hear about the virgin birth and, right, and right. I mean of course we know that from the new testament but here would be maybe in an ironic way John reminding his readers of the true origin of Jesus which of course has been a a source of contention throughout you know where does Jesus come from he's been saying one thing the people have been believing something else. Again, that's certainly a question here. So we were not born of sexual immorality. And then this, we have one father, even God. So again, who their father is continues to be the, the source of conversation. Earlier, it was Abraham. I don't think they bought what Jesus has said yet, but now they're kind of upping the ante with, we have one father, even God. What are they, what are they claiming there to have God as their father? Yeah, this is, again, I think their sense that they're going beyond the flesh now. What they're doing is they're, they're pointing to what they see as the covenant relationship, I think, that they have from God. They're the chosen people. They're the special people. And uh, this seems to be for them a sort of a trump card. Okay, we can talk about Abraham all we want, but let's get real here. We're children of God. God is our father. 
unlike the rest of the you know unclean nations around us. We have God as our Father, and therefore what we say, what we believe, what we're doing has merit simply because of that. So it, it seems to really be this sort of trump card in their argument that how dare you lecture us? We're children of God, and you were born of sexual immorality. Hmm. Yeah, and I mean, if you go into the Old Testament, you can see places where the Lord does claim his people as his son, I think most notably in the Exodus, where he talks about you know Israel being his firstborn son. So they have the, the Old Testament, at least in one sense, they think on their side. And yet, as we've seen with what it means to be a child of Abraham, to be a son of God in this sense, again, is not based on your bloodline or your, or your genealogy, but it, it is a matter of faith, which is what they're missing. Is there a is there another maybe slight at Jesus here when they claim to have God as their father with some of the things Jesus has been saying about God as his father? Yeah, back in chapter five, uh, John makes clear that they were seeking to kill him, not because of any sign that he did or any action that he made, but because he was claiming to be the Son of God, making himself equal with God. And so here you have the irony. Jesus has claimed to be the Son of God. They reject that. But now they claim themselves to be sons of God, which, like you said, they do have Old Testament foundation to do that. So you mentioned the Exodus. Another good one is from Isaiah 63 and 64. In fact, in Isaiah 63, 16, the servant is saying, you are our father, uh, though Abraham does not know us and Israel does not acknowledge us, you, O Lord, are our father, our redeemer from of old is your name. So Abraham didn't know these people because, well, he's been dead now for thousands of years. Um, and Jacob, same, same thing. And yet the people at the time of the exile around that time are saying, God is our father. So it's not as if they've just made this up. This is some new teaching or something like that. But again, that they, as the covenant people of God, can claim in this very real way, God is our Father. And in fact, we have this in the scriptures. You would think, okay, well, it's not as if they, they made this up. And yet, is this really true? Because, as Jesus is going to say, if this were true, then things would look quite differently. So it's not as if it's wrong just per se that we're saying God is our Father. But what mm -hmm. Jesus is saying is that you're wrong because you're not actually listening to who you claim your father to. Hmm. Yeah, so we will we will pick that up on the other side of the break, how Jesus responds to this statement from the Jews. We have one father, even God. We'll look at that on the other side. You're listening to Sharper Iron here on KFUO. We're talking to Pastor Mark Squire about John chapter 8. We'll be right back. Please stick around. Did you know that Lutherans are helping new American immigrants get settled? How about struggling church workers in need of support and refreshment? And we assist at-risk children and provide disaster response to hurricane victims. Through LCMS recognized service organizations, we are doing all this and more. I'm Rahema Kavuga of Lutheran Church Extension Fund, and I don't want you to miss out on hearing what your brothers and sisters in Christ are up to. Visit interesttime.org to see how your support gives life to these works of mercy and love. What do you think of when you hear the word college? Expensive? Liberal? Woke? Imagine a college that is affordable. A college that is unapologetically conservative and Lutheran. A college that won't take a dime of federal funding. A college that teaches the best of our Western heritage. 
a college where students grow in the Christian faith instead of leaving it behind. This is Luther Classical College, a college by Lutherans and for Lutherans. Visit our website, lutherclassical.org, subscribe, become a patron, and join the thousands who are making Luther Classical College a reality. Welcome back to Sharper Iron. It is Thursday, February 16th. We're studying John chapter 8, verses 39 to 47 with Pastor Mark Squire. He serves at Emanuel Lutheran Church in St. Ansgar, Iowa. Pastor Squire, prior to the break, we were looking at the opposition to Jesus where the Jews say to him, we were not born of sexual immorality like you were, Jesus, wink, wink. We have one father, even God. And we talked about what they're thinking about from the Old Testament for that statement. But Jesus is going to tell them why they're, again, thinking incorrectly. He says, if God were your father, you would love me, for I came from God and I am here. Talk about how Jesus responds again to their claim to have God as their father. Jesus responds very starkly. He responds very directly that if this were true, uh, everything would look differently. So number one, you would love me. Well, why does that matter? Because Jesus came from God and Jesus is standing there right in front of them. And he didn't come of his own accord, but God's the one who sent me. So Jesus claiming uh, who he is, number one, but also his mandate from God, his, his vocation from God, which is to come into the world to speak God's word. And naturally, of course, then what he does, so he comes to die for the sins of the world. But you can't say on the one hand, well, I love God, but I hate Jesus. That's just not possible. And this is Jesus' point here is that you can't, and we see this at the end of chapter eight, you can't separate God the Father from God the Son. You can't separate God from Jesus. Now, of course, as Christians, with our understanding of the doctrine of the Trinity and all that, we distinguish the Father and the Son, but you can't have one without the other. And the other apostles and evangelists and New Testament writers make this very same point. It's only through Jesus that you can get to God. So the later in John, uh, John chapter 14, when is it Philip that asks, well, Jesus, just, mm-hmm. just show us the Father and that'll be enough. Yeah. And, uh, you know, uh, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? Well, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So what Jesus is doing is making very clear that anyone who claims to love God, anyone who certainly claims to be a child of God, cannot do so apart from loving Jesus. Jesus is God in the flesh. Jesus is the Son of God. He's the one who has come to make all things known to God's people and to bring salvation. And if you are going to claim otherwise, then what you're really doing is hating God. Mm. Yeah. So again, to see this, again, this is another one of those themes that we see throughout the Gospel of John. You brought up John 14 as perhaps the most classic one, that no one comes to the Father except through me. But but here throughout, I mean, we see Jesus saying, if you want to know who the Father is, then you need to know who I am. You need to listen to my words. You need to love me. Those who do so truly know God and trust in God and and are his children— but those who do not love Jesus, who reject Jesus, they cannot be the children of God because they're rejecting the Son of God, Jesus. So again, he talks about how the Father sent him. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Verse 43, why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. What does Jesus mean in verse 43? 
Well, it's, it's quite strong language, isn't it? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. Not that yeah. you don't or something, but that they cannot, which seems to indicate, as Jesus says elsewhere, that, that people's hearts are hardened against him, which, again, is just a frightening prospect for anyone to hear that this is a possibility. And yet their hearts are so hardened, their ears are so plugged, they cannot listen to him. They cannot bear to hear his word. Which John has already laid out for us from the very beginning of his gospel. He said back in chapter 1, verse 11, that Jesus came to his own, but his own people did not receive him. So, yeah, they cannot. They are God's people in the sense that they're descended from Abraham. Uh, I failed to mention, too, in Isaiah 64, that having God as their father is also tied to creation. So in some sense, all people are children of God, but in the sense that it's used in the New Testament, usually it's reference to us being God's people in the sense that we're connected with Christ. We have been brought into Christ and we're children of God by faith, so we're co-heirs with Christ. And this is not the case for the Jews who are listening to him speak right now. They are, as we're going to see in the next verse, they have to be children of someone else then, and they're not children of God. They're children of the devil, and uh, in mm. that way, they they cannot hear God's word. Mm. So, and let's talk a little bit more about forty three because it, it answers the question, uh, you know, as to why they cannot listen to Jesus, why they cannot understand his his word. But unanswered in this verse is why some people do believe, and lest we, you know, because lest we become proud or conceited as those who do believe. It's maybe worth our while to remember what Jesus has said elsewhere about those who do believe. Here's why people don't believe, but elsewhere from John's gospel and, and anywhere else in scripture, Pastor Squire, why is it that some people do believe? Well, you know, I can go a couple of ways with, ways with this. I think naturally um, the catechism we could answer this from the explanation to the third article, which is, you know, I believe that I cannot by my own reason or strength believe in Jesus Christ, my right. Lord, or come to him, but the Holy Spirit has called me by the gospel, enlightened me with his gifts, sanctified and kept me in the true faith. We know that the work of conversion, of salvation, of sanctification, all these words that we love to use, they're all the work of God. But I think probably here in the context, the better way to go is to already point to those next couple of verses in John chapter 1, which he says, to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So again, God is the source, uh, not just of Jesus' conception, you know, by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary, but he's the source of our becoming his children in the sense that Jesus speaks of in chapter three. So when he talks again, I mentioned Nicodemus earlier, you must be born again. You must be born from above. You must be born of water and the spirit. Well, for us, I mean, we hear water and spirit, we think of baptism, yes, I mean, that's a great place to go. But certainly, the foundational level of that, well, what's happening in baptism? Well, it's the word of God being spoken and the faith which clings to that. So, to become a child of God is not our decision, it's not our work, it's God's work, and mm -hmm. we cling to that. We don't become, like, like you just said a few moments ago, we don't want to become boastful about this as if, oh, well, God chose me. Um, and <laughs> to go back to Paul, Paul talks about this in yeah. Romans 11, right? Well, you're a wild branch and you've been grafted on. Don't think that God 
can't cut you off yeah. again. So uh, it's it's a place of comfort for us to go. It's not something to boast about in ourselves. But as he does say at the end of 1 Corinthians 1, let the one who boasts, boasts in the Lord. God did this. God is powerful. God is mighty. God is loving. And he he shows it all in Jesus Christ. Yeah, yeah. The context from John chapter one is helpful. I was thinking in my mind as well about some of the things that Jesus says in John chapter six that you know no one comes to him unless the Father draws him. Yes. Mm-hmm. So I mean, the only way that any of us get out of the situation that's going on here in John chapter eight is by the grace of God, right. which then, as you said, and echoing Paul, you know, leads us to boast not in ourselves but in the Lord alone. And I, I just, I think that's a helpful reminder here as we're in the midst of a group of people that's not believing in Jesus because they have, have chosen to remain in their sin, to, to follow after their father, which we'll hear Jesus talk about more, lest we become prideful. It's good to remember that we are only children of God in the true sense that Jesus is talking about. We're only children of God by his grace, his grace alone. As you said, echoed very well by Luther in the, the small catechism. Mm-hmm not by our own reason or strength, but only by the calling of the Holy Spirit. So that takes us then to, to verse 44 of the text where Jesus now, we've been talking about this, but he for the first time identifies what he's been meaning when he says, you're doing what your father, his works are. So here he very clearly says, you're of your father, the devil, your will is to do your father's desires. We mentioned that this is a text that doesn't show up in the lectionary, yet I, I find this verse, I, I know I reference it in my teaching and sometimes in my preaching as well. Take us into verse 44. There's a lot that we can talk about here. There is. And Jesus is doing what he often does in John's gospel. He says something a little bit enigmatic. People don't understand. They take it the wrong way or or they run with it a different way. Finally, Jesus just gets to the point. And I'm reminded a little bit of John chapter 11, where Lazarus is ill. And Jesus says, first, this illness does not lead to death. The disciples probably think, well, okay, that's great. And then Jesus says, well, Lazarus has fallen asleep and they say, well, Lord, if he's fallen asleep, then that's great. You know, he'll, he'll be healed. And he finally has to say to them, Lazarus has died. <laughs> yeah. uh, and so here it, in, in a bit of a different way, Jesus is doing the same thing. Okay. Well, you're not of Abraham. You're not of God. Well, now very clearly you are of the, your father, the devil. Oh, well, that, I don't, I don't think you can really say anything more. Uh, more negative about someone, right? That you're that you're of your father, the devil. Yeah. So Jesus is getting finally to the heart of this: that they can't claim to be children of Abraham by anything more than the flesh, and they certainly cl- can't claim to be children of God by anything more than the the very fact that they've been created. So as far as salvation goes, as far as as grace goes. Uh, they're opposing God, and in that, then they show themselves not to be children of God, but children of the devil. So we really have this this sort of not I don't know if metaphor is the right word, but certainly a spiritual understanding that they're not doing what God says. Therefore, they cannot be shown to be children of God. Hmm. So I mean, how do we understand that that they are children of the devil, or that the devil is their father? Yeah, well, I I want to say one thing here. This is the Old Testament scholar in me coming out, but uh, in my uh, my STM thesis, I got to to talk about this a little bit. But there's actually this this ancient Jewish tradition, uh, legend, if you will, that Cain, you know, the brother of Abel, the son of Adam and Eve, was literally the son of the devil. In that, 
uh, Eve had somehow become pregnant by Satan. And so you have Abel, who's the son of, of Adam and Eve and is the righteous one, whereas Cain is literally the son of Eve and the serpent. And so this is why then Cain does what he does, which is lie and murder. And even in some early Christian traditions, you have people pointing to 1 John chapter 3, verse 12 as, as evidence of this, where you see John picking up the same sort of thing. He says, we should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. So mm-hmm. just as an interesting aside, that th- this legend existed. Uh, but mm-hmm. I think we can quite obviously see that Jesus is not somehow claiming that these are descendants of Cain by Satan or something like this. Right. But that what it means to be a son of the devil is that not only are they not sons of Abraham, not sons of God, but they're sons of the devil because they live outside the truth. And particularly because what they're doing right now is seeking to kill the Son of God, which is what the devil has sought to do since the beginning. And in fact, I think this is probably the right way then to understand the account in Revelation where you have the great dragon who's, who's going after this woman who's just given birth. You can see Satan going after Jesus in, in any number of ways. And this is what the Jews here in chapter 8 are doing. They're seeking to kill Jesus, the Word made flesh, which becomes this physical manifestation of their blasphemy, of their hardness of heart, and, and their, the, the utmost of their evil. Mm. So that helps us to understand what Jesus means when he says, you're of the Father, the devil. Your will is to do your Father's desires. And then you know, Jesus here talks a little bit more about who the devil is, and especially about what those works are. He identifies two, that the devil is a murderer from the beginning, and he has nothing to do with the truth. So the the murdering and the lying, this, these are the devil's works. Talk, talk more about what we learn there about the devil. I don't know. I, this is, I think the place that this shows up in, in some of my teaching and thinking about this is when I look into the world around me, and I see death and murder, and I see lies and untruth, to recognize that there's a, a spiritual dimension to that too. It's not only like political or economic or social, but that when we see these things in the world today, the devil is at work in those things. I think that's a helpful reminder from a verse like this. It is. And like you said, ultimately, the things that we see in the world aren't political or any economic or whatever else. They're, they're symptoms of the deeper problem, which is sin. And did sin come into the world while well, the devil tempted mankind and Mankind fell into sin, and now there is lying, and there is murder, and there's all manner of sin. This, the murder is, as we see in the commandments, as we see in our own experiences, there's really not anything worse you can do to a person ultimately than to take away their lives, to, to murder them. So Jesus gets to the, the end of this. Well, any, any pain that's inflicted on someone, the, the climax of this is, is, is to murder. But I think the, the lying part here is really important because, well, what is God's word if it's not truth? When God speaks, what he says happens. So let there be light. There's light. And he looks and he sees that it's good. Everything that God has said is good. It happens. It's real. Which means then that whatever Satan says is, is a lie. It's not real. It can be a manipulation of God's word, and yet 
what does it leave you with except death, suffering? It's all this meaninglessness that you get in Ecclesiastes, right? Uh, it's vaporous. It, it might look good right now, but it's disappearing. It's, it's going away. And so the lies then become, I think, a great way to speak about sin in general and certainly opposition to God that something might seem good to you at the time. It might seem pleasing. It might even seem real, but ultimately what a lie is, is it's just the opposite of what God says. So if you're, you're going against what God says, uh, you're, you're in danger of, of going after the devil. You're being a, a son of the devil. Well, and I think that's the that's the warning here. Is it's not you know this isn't an excuse for some to say oh the the devil made me right. do it or the devil made him do it, but it serves as a warning that when we find ourselves you know on the side of murder or lies, Jesus is saying, look who you're allying yourself with. Pay attention lest you fall because you're in a really dangerous spot right now. Exactly, and that you're right. This is a warning because. Lies are not, I mean, we, we think, oh, well, lies are just, they don't really harm anyone. Well, um, hmm. what Jesus is saying here, <laughs> you're living outside of the truth of God. So that's, that's danger enough. And for, for Jesus to get to the, the point where he says the lies and the murder, essentially you're persisting in this, you're making yourself a child of the devil. Yeah, hmm. you can blame the devil all you want, but uh, he's just he's just the one who's, who's brought this to you, but uh, what he's done is he's brought you outside of God's word, outside of reality, really, in, into sort of a delusion, which, you know, in our delusion, what did we do as human beings? We killed the son of God. Uh, and that's, that's awful. Yeah, yeah. So it's a very strong warning within these words from Jesus. Let's let's pick up the rest of the text, verses 45 to 47, so that we have a little bit of time to, to think through some more applications. Uh, what does Jesus say as, as he concludes, again, our part of the conversation for today? Yeah, he says in verse 45, because I tell you the truth, you do not believe me, which seems like a pretty clear way of following up what he said. It's not that It's not that they don't want to believe him, it's that because he tells the truth, they don't believe him, which really reinforces what he said then about them being sons of the devil, is that they cannot do this because of who they are, which is to say, I think if you see it playing out, what they're seeking after is fleshly, it's earthly, whether it's the leaders who are seeking power and authority and influence and riches and whatever else. you know, In the Gospels, it says that the Pharisees are lovers of money, for example. Um, or because they, they want God's salvation, but they want it in a way that God himself hasn't said that this is what I'm going to do. So then what Jesus does is he, he, he asks them in verse 46, which one of you convicts me of sin? If I tell you the truth, why do you not believe me? Which seems to me a bit of a strange question because he seems to have answered that a couple times already. Why don't <laughs> they believe him? Well, they can't. But his point here rhetorically, of course, is, you're opposed to me, but why? And I, and I think it's supposed to get them to try to think, well, what's actually going on here? But, but certainly even more for us, why is it that they're opposed to him? Why are they going after him? It's not because he's lying. It's not because he's wrong, but it's because they're lying, because they're sons of the devil. 
But I, mm. how Jesus wraps this up in verse 47, again, like I said in the introduction, you have two groups. So you have this group that, that are the sons of the devil, that are liars and murderers because of who their father is. But whoever is of God hears the word of God. So Jesus doesn't leave us in this reading without any sort of hope or, or comfort. Uh, you might think, well, am I, am I a child of the devil? I mean, I've lied before, or mm. I've, you know, I've had yeah. angry thoughts or angry words against someone. Um, but ultimately, it's not about these specific events or these specific sins, but are you listening to God? Just like mm. with all the other commandments, if you don't have the first commandment right, then the rest of them don't matter. So if you're not listening to the word of God, then you can say all you want. Well, I'm a righteous person. I've never murdered anyone. I've never committed adultery, all these things. Well, yeah, but you're not listening to God's word. And so then essentially what are you doing? You're trusting in yourself. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, that, that goes back to what we were saying earlier about what it means to be a child of Abraham and what the works of Abraham were, that mm-hmm. his his work was faith, that right. he he trusted God's word. And and like you said, for those who, who are fearful, well, what am I a child of the devil? Which is, you know, that's not a bad question to ask in, in a text like this. There there should be a bit of fear that is is brought up inside of us hearing Jesus' words and recognizing our own sin. But in that, to hear the comfort of Jesus' words as well, whoever is of God hears the words of God, that there is great comfort. And to, to know then that what is the, the way out of all of this, it is the grace of God alone, which has given us Jesus Christ. And through faith in him, then we are truly children of Abraham and children of God. He is the one as the son of God who makes us children of God as well. That's what's being missed here by those to whom Jesus is speaking, but that is the good news for those who who hear and read this text today. So as we've got about four minutes here, Pastor Squire, on the morning, and there's tons in this text. I mean, as we were talking about verse 44, we could have drawn so many implications for our lives as Christians today. As you help us to wrap things up and think about application of this text, what it means, the comfort for us, uh, how would you how would you give this text to us? What What should we take from it as Christians? Yeah, just briefly for Jesus, we see here that how strong the opposition is. It's not just that people don't like what he's saying. It's that people are opposed to him because they're on the wrong side. They're children of the devil. And how does this end? Well, it ends with his arrest and his beating and passion and crucifixion and death. But of course, just like Jesus doesn't leave us without hope here, the Gospels do not leave us without hope. Jesus was raised from the dead and praise God eternally for for his good work for us in that. I think from this text, um, what we can see is that, again, that there are two groups. And so what does it mean to be a child of God? Well, it means to listen to what he has to say. And I think maybe in particular, and, and this is maybe because I've been teaching on this a little bit, is that what, what we can be pointed to is the Lord's Prayer, for example. So how does the Lord's Prayer begin? Our Father who art in heaven. And it, we, we skip over that so often and we forget how deeply that meaning is embedded in our faith and in our life, that we are children of God. We are children of God by his grace, by his choosing, by his forgiveness. He has given us salvation, not by any works of our own, but because he loves us. And so, well, what should we do? We should continue to listen to him. 
And that's especially true because just like Jesus was faced with opposition, just like Jesus was faced with all sorts of affliction and struggle, those of us who are connected to Christ, those of us who continue in the truth of God's word, are going to continue to be faced with that same sort of affliction, that same sort of struggle. Because the world is full of darkness. The darkness can't stand the light. So liars are going to lie. Murderers are going to murder, despite God's clear word of truth calling them to repentance. So unfortunately, in one sense, the world is going to remain like it is until the end. But for we who are called, we who are children of God, we who listen to and cling to God's word, we have eternal life no matter what happens to us now. Even if the worst happens to us, uh, we'll be carried to the, the bosom of Abraham and, and rest in Jesus until that great and glorious day when Jesus will return in the name of the Lord God Almighty will be written on our foreheads. And, you know, to go even just in, later in John's gospel, we cannot be snatched out of his hand. And that's, that's the comfort, that's the hope in, in being of Christ, being in his word. Pastor Mark Squire is pastor at Emmanuel Lutheran Church in St. Ansgar, Iowa, helping us today to study John chapter 8, verses 39 to 47. Pastor Squire, thanks for being our guest today. Very welcome. Jesus gives a strong warning in today's text. The devil is a murderer and a liar. Take care, lest we would align ourselves with him. We do well to examine our lives and to repent and to trust in Jesus Christ. By faith in him, God makes us his own children now and forever. I am your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Faith Lutheran Church in Godfrey, Illinois. If you have any questions about the gospel according to St. John, please send an email to kfuo at kfuo.org. It's always a pleasure to hear from you. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again tomorrow.